The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I propose in this study to leave the main line of the argument that is here set forth and to turn my attention to some of the incidental teaching of this verse. It's teaching on marriage and to answer those who have used this passage wrongly to condemn certain remarriages where there should have been no condemnation. For two or three studies, therefore, I propose to treat the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage from the point of view of the Word of God, setting forth all that there is in the Bible on the subjects and bringing the light of the whole of the divine revelation to illuminate this important question. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Christian Marriage. A woman under the Mosaic Law was bound to her husband as long as he lived, but she was free to marry again after he died. The law, as the guiding principle of our relationship with God, was put to death when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Believers are now free from the law and have been joined to Christ to live by God's grace and love. How does our union with Jesus Christ establish the pattern for Christian marriage? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christian Marriage. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Thou art the God of all grace, and we worship Thee for Thy love and Thy faithfulness. Thou hast not looked upon us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Thou hast shown Thyself to be gracious, and Thy loving kindness has been poured upon us. Thy faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Bless now as we read and study Thy word, and use it to the praise and glory of Thy grace. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're studying in the seventh chapter of Romans, and I come today to a phrase in the second verse of the chapter, the law of her husband. The general theme of this section of the epistle to the Romans is the freedom of the believer from the law in order that he might be a bond slave of righteousness through Jesus Christ. The illustration that Paul is using here is that of marriage under the Jewish law, as we saw in our last study. Briefly, the argument is this that just as a woman under the Mosaic law was bound to her husband as long as he lived, but was free to marry again if he died, so the believer in Jesus Christ, 
and primarily the reference was to the Jewish believer, was made free from the law by the fact that the law was put to death in the death of Christ, freeing the believer from its bondage so that he might be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection. A tyrant husband, the law, had died, and the new union was to Christ, the one who is altogether lovely. Marriage is one of the most important facts of life, and like all other elements of life, it was designed by God for a definite spiritual purpose. There is no relationship in life whatsoever which has not been created by God in order to teach us something about the Lord's plans and desires for us. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so, when much later God actually created the heavens and the earth and all of life and its processes, he designed every detail for the purpose of bringing us into deeper knowledge of himself. It would be well to ponder the great facts that God the Father never has had a thought in all eternity that was not centered in the glorification of his Son, Jesus Christ, and of us with him, and that the Lord Jesus Christ has never had a thought that was not centered in the fulfillment of the Father's will, which is bound up with the whole plan of salvation as the means of best showing the Father's glories. The creation of the institution of marriage is declared in the Bible to be the perfect illustration of the way in which the Father joins true believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The central passage on the subject is found in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, and I want to read the paragraph. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I have read 11 verses from Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Now it is because of all that is set forth here, that I am so interested in seeing young Christians properly and happily married in the Lord. One evening at a social affair in the parlors of our church, some of the young people came to me and made comments on a wedding which I had performed that afternoon. One of the young men in the group said to me, you get a large charge out of marrying a couple, don't you? There was a general laugh, but I, I immediately affirmed that I do. I pointed out 
that I get to see something that nobody but a minister ever gets to see. I stand with my face about 18 inches away from the faces of the bride and groom, and I'm able to see their innermost emotions at one of the most important moments in their lives. There is one moment in the wedding ceremony at which I reach out and take the right hand of the bridegroom, and then I take the right hand of the bride and place her hand in his, with my hands covering theirs. You know, I, I can tell about their future home life by the way their muscles contract and the way they look at each other when I put her hand in his. And when they are thus joined, I speak, and he repeats after me the words of the marriage ceremony. I say, I, John, take thee, Mary, and he repeats, I, John, take thee, Mary, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. Then I break their hand clasp, turn her hand over and place his hand in hers and repeat the same words for her to say after me. There have been times at wedding rehearsals when the bride has looked at me and said, I, Mary, take thee, John, and I've stopped her and said, Now look, you're not to look at me. My name is Donald, and it's John that you're taking. And so it is that when the wedding ceremony takes place, I can look at the faces of the two before me as they exchange the tenderest of vows and can feel their hands contract together in that clasp of surrender and possession. I, Mary, take thee, John, to be my wedded husband, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful wife, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. You know, if Hollywood could get on film the emotions that I see and touch, it would be a film that would rank with the greatest ever made. But believe me, glycerin tears and painted emotions can never convey that which is the reality of true love's tenderest expression. Whenever I perform a wedding, I always make some brief remarks to the bride and groom on the nature of Christian marriage. They run something like this. After the rings have been exchanged, I say, now, before pronouncing the words of the formula that legally makes you man and wife, I wish to say a few things about the nature of Christian marriage. You have not gone to a justice of the peace for your wedding, but you've come to a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're standing here within a few steps of the table on which we're accustomed to place the bread and the wine, the symbols of the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have, both of you, testified to your personal faith in Christ as your own savior from sin. For I'm able to put that sentence in the ceremony because I always talk to my brides and grooms before their marriage, trying to find if they both know certainly that their faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I continue, Mary, the Lord has given you a very high standard for your love. He says that your thoughts toward John should be something like all of our thoughts towards the Lord Jesus Christ when we come into the church on Sunday morning, singing hymns of praise and bowing in prayer to thank our Lord and to commit ourselves to him. The standard of a woman's love for her husband is that of human love on its highest level. No marriage can be truly happy where the woman does not recognize this position for which God has created her 
and accept it joyfully as her own and to look to her husband somewhat as the church looks to Christ in its hour of worship and praise. Then I continue, but John, the only reason that it is possible for the Lord to place a woman in such a position towards her man is that he has given to you an even higher responsibility than that which is given to your bride. It is to you that he says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So that while Mary is given the highest of human love as her standard and ideal, you are given divine love as your standard and ideal. And incidentally, no woman will ever have any difficulty obeying and submitting to a man who is willing to be crucified for her. When I'm counseling with them during their days of planning, I always try to tell them that they are to understand that they live in the midst of a world that simply cannot understand the reality of true marriage in Christ. One day outside the famous chapel at Valley Forge, where so many marriages are performed, I saw some young men decorating an automobile in which a bride and groom would soon depart from their marriage. In addition to the cans and old shoes that were tied to the car, there was a large sign pasted on the back, and the words were, Love, honor, and obey applesauce. I wondered how long it would be before a marriage with such standards would end in the divorce courts. Christians should realize that when jokes are made about marriage, they are inferentially helping to tear down the spiritual meaning for which the Lord instituted marriage. Can we imagine Christ introducing his church with the words, I want you to meet the old battle axe, or here is the ball and chain? Then let us not use any such language under any circumstances whatsoever. And let us not tell jokes such as the one which runs, I wanted the house painted green and she wanted it yellow, so we compromised on yellow. Now, if there ever is such a spirit of compromise, the marriage does not have the joy in it which the Lord meant marriage to have. Someone says, why, doctor, if you eliminated all such jokes, there'd be no radio comics left. The battle of the sexes is one of the funniest things in TV. Yes, and it's why we have the highest divorce rate in the world. It is because of the late view in which so many hold this very solemn ceremony. John, I tell him when they are seated in my study talking about their coming marriage, the fact that she is to obey you never means that you are to command her. You are to win her opinion and lead her in love. If the house needs painting and there's a difference of opinion about the color, then the thing to do is to postpone the job. Every time you both see the weathered boards, you will realize that there is a field of thought in which you are not quite one. And if you pray about your differences and are really submitted to the Lord for his leading, there will come that day when you're driving together and suddenly she'll say, oh, just as you've put on the brake, and you'll both look at each other, yes, 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 and drive back past the house whose color scheme you've just admired, and you'll both agree that that is just what you want. And when your house is painted, and people admire it, asking who chose the colors, you'll answer proudly, we did. Now that is true marriage in the Christian way. But I always say to Mary, 
when we're in the office talking together about the coming ceremony, Mary, there may be times when there's a decision to be made that cannot wait like an unpainted house. If in the middle of the night, when there is a sick child and you want to call one doctor and John thinks that another doctor should be called, you are not to insist. When you've quietly stated your reason for your opinion, if John overrules it and believes that another should be called, then you're to follow his judgment unhesitatingly. And even if the baby dies, you're never to suggest that it was because he didn't call the doctor you wanted. And you may be sure that there is never a home that is truly filled with the joy of Christ, where the husband and wife are not together in a relationship such as I have described. The wife submitting to the husband, the husband recognizing his responsibility, and seriously, solemnly, and gladly laying hold upon them in full dependence to the Lord for strength to carry through his harder part. And when we're in the ceremony itself, I always set before them the centrality of the family altar as the keystone of the home. John, I say, you are the head of the house, and you are its high priest. The spiritual tone of the home is dependent upon the husband and father. A Christian husband and wife are the simplest form of the local church. For the Lord has said, where two are gathered together, there am I in the midst. Before your eyes close in sleep this night, take the word of God and read a few verses and pray together, asking the Lord to bless you in your newfounded home. And tomorrow morning, establish your family altar as a breakfast practice. It does not need to take over five minutes, but rightfully carried on and faithfully followed, it will be the cement that will bind the home together. A few verses from the word of God, a brief prayer, thanking God for the home and committing all of its interests to his loving care, and then a word of love. That is the family altar. It is highly significant to me in the light of the fact that true marriage is the illustration of Christ and the church, that the nature of the man and the woman about hearing words of love is slightly different. A man doesn't have to be told in so many words that he is loved, even though a loving wife will often speak those words. A man probably thinks that he should have no reason to doubt that he's loved, for in his male pride he would not understand why he should not be loved when he's doing all that he can to nourish and support the home. But the woman has to be told. Say it with flowers, say it with candy, say it with a dish rag, but above all, say it with words. I preached this message in a certain city in the South a few years ago, and the morning afterwards while I was sitting in my hotel room studying, the telephone rang and a woman's voice said, Oh, Dr. Barnhouse, you don't know me, but I have to tell you about this for I'm, I'm so happy I don't know what to do. My husband and I were at the meeting last night, and when we came home, he set the alarm for 15 minutes earlier than usual. We sat down to breakfast and he opened the Bible and read a few verses and he prayed for the first time I've ever heard him pray. And then he kissed me and he said to the children, you know, children, when I got your mother, I hit the jackpot. And when he left for work, he kissed me again and said, forgive me for not using the words oftener. And she said, I just had to call you up and tell you it's so wonderful. Oh, I wonder why men don't understand this simple truth. I'm sure that if they would sometimes telephone home in the middle of a hot morning, perhaps calling the wife from the basement washing machine all the way up to the phone and say, honey, I don't have a thing to say that's business, but I just had to call you up and tell you that I love you. Why, she'd go back to her work and the drudgery would be gone. She would finish her task and start another with joy. She'd go on to making an old hat, 
do over for another year and turning the goods of an old dress to be dyed for a fresh color and her heart would be singing as she worked. Many a Christian is living a humdrum life because he hasn't looked into the word of God to hear the divine bridegroom tell us that he does love us. The words are there and oh, how the church needs it. My beloved is mine and I am his and we love him because he first loved us and again, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And he loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, when I know that I am loved of the Lord, in spite of all that he knows about me, when I know that I have been loved by him since before the foundation of the world, when I realize that what I was did not deter him from leaving heaven to die for me, then I find a new song in my mouth flowing out of the abundance of my heart. Then I sing, I marvel that he should descend from his throne divine to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine, that he should extend his great love unto such as I, sufficient to own, to redeem, and to justify. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Oh, when I was a child, I sang it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but I didn't know what it meant. Now I'm beginning to know, and it makes me respond to him. I love thee, Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul wanted the young Christians to understand. He travailed for them so that they who had been espoused to Christ might be presented to him as a chaste virgin. Yes, in our salvation, we were married to Christ. He it was who took the vows first of all. I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my bride. And I do promise and covenant before God and this universe of witnesses to be thy loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in faithfulness and in waywardness for time and for eternity. It was then that we looked up to him and said, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful bride, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, for time and for eternity. Thus we took his name. We were Miss Worldling. But we were married to him and we now bear his name, for Christian means Christian. If we realize the true meaning of this, we can understand how important it is to keep that name of his spotless before the world. For a woman bears the honor of her husband's name. Whatever she is and whatever she does reflects on him. I believe that herein lies one of the meanings of one of the Ten Commandments, a meaning that is often completely misunderstood. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. Now, ordinarily, this is used to describe blasphemy and swearing, but there's more to it than that. When a woman takes a man's name, she henceforth honors or dishonors it by every act of her life, and we have taken the name of our Lord. This is the essence of true marriage. We shall see in our next study that he cannot be unfaithful to us.
and that his love should constrain us to a deathless love for him. We live in the midst of a world that is always seeking to drag us from faithfulness, that wishes us to flirt with the world instead of to be faithful to our absent bridegroom. But he has left us his love and all the resources of his life to keep us for himself. And it is to this that he calls us. May our hearts look to him and pray in the hour of trial, Jesus, plead for me, lest by base denial I depart from thee. When thou seest me waver with a look, recall, nor for fear nor favor, suffer me to fall. And our Father, we pray thee that thou will bless this word to each heart in this hour. If there be those who have not be born again who listen, wilt thou give them restlessness until they come to the knowledge of this tender love of the Savior? And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new sense of thy love and faithfulness, and unto thee be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power, now, till our Lord Jesus come again, and forever. Amen. Just as a bride takes the name of her husband, you took the name of your Savior when you were joined to him by faith. We must honor and glorify the name of Jesus Christ with our lives. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Christian Marriage. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Christian Marriage or simply request message number R7-2. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, What God Has Joined Together. In the book of Malachi, God declares that He hates divorce. And yet in America, the divorce rate among professing Christians is virtually the same as that of unbelievers. This booklet will show you from Scripture how important marriage is in God's eyes and how to maintain a strong, healthy relationship with your husband or wife. If you want to build a biblically sound marriage that will glorify God and stand the test of time, ask for your free copy of What God Has Joined Together When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials, which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please, won't you prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air? For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed theologians and teachers such as Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time 
for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.